Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me on State of the Art Podcast. I'm your guest host, Dorothy Santos. For those of you who are confused, State of the Art decided to expand their niche beyond art and tech to include a variety of topics which have shaped the state of the art as we know it today. With this in mind, I've been invited to take over the podcast for a month-long discussion exploring queerness. In this episode, I speak with artist Lark VCR. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about Lark. Lark Alder, aka VCR, works in video installation, interactive media, and performance. The VCR in Lark VCR actually stands for Virtually Conflicted Reality. Their creative practice involves speculative fiction and critical design. They actually leverage humor to tackle subjects that include, but they're not limited to, biosurveillance, social media addiction, and trauma. They received their MFA from UC Berkeley and their BA from Harvard University and currently teach digital media art at San Jose State University's Cadre Media Lab. Our conversation includes discussion about creative coding, games, and digital incantations. Listen and enjoy. I'm curious if, would it be possible for you to talk a little bit more about the project that kind of, I felt that really, you know, piqued my interest in your practice, which was Babump. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I guess to talk about Babump, it makes sense to um, look at the origins of what really became my obsession with heart rate monitors. Um and so when I was entering graduate school for art at UC Berkeley, I definitely was excited to um, delve into my art practice, but also wanted to take advantage of being at this huge institution in every way that I could. And I wanted to create tools for healing um, and came up with this idea to create a heart rate variability biofeedback device. Um, it basically reads your heart rate so that you can sync it up to your breath um, while deep breathing or meditating. And it's really helpful for people who have activated uh, mental states and to you know give you something to focus on so that you can get the benefits of deep breathing or meditation. But the problem is, is that all the heart rate variability devices that exist on the market are fucking hideous. Um, Agreed. Yeah. They're like weird cords you link up to your computer with these graphs. That it's just like not what you want to do when you're chilling out. Um, so I designed this thing that looks like a geode and um, glows when your heart rate goes up or down. Um, and that's the biofeedback. So in doing research for this, though, um, I became very quickly horrified <laughs> by the reality of um, heart rate sensors. That heart rate could be read by a camera, by, you know, your your cell phone in, you know, 10 years, like satellites and um just the fact that this surveillance is like literally exposing our, um, like metaphorically speaking, our most like sensitive organ or, you know, the one that's like most um, closely tied to 
um, are, well, I mean, I guess you could argue that the gut is that, but you know, like the, the, the heart, right? Yeah. But it's um, also a very intimate organ too. The symbolism of it, how it's been depicted in, in culture and in media. Mm-hmm. So yes, I absolutely always around. I agree with this. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's tied, um, it's like a direct tie to your nervous system, right? So when your heart rate starts pounding, that's like nervous. So like people are trying to get in the airport, you know, and like some um, camera picks up that they have an elevated heart rate and, you know. Okay. So um, so even before I made Miglo, which ended up getting some incubator fun- um, funding from UC Berkeley, which was a really funny infiltration scene. Um, but so even before Miglo, I created this project called Bump. Um, and it is a device that's designed for employers to monitor employee heart rate in real time. And uh, this is just around the, I don't know, like the cultural moment that we were just talking about, mm-hmm. where a lot of corporate um, environments were having their employees form teams where they could, you know, reach these health go- goals. And then yeah, I've done that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I when I used to work in biotech, we had to actually we had a whole month where our company was monitoring our performance so that we were meeting our said goals of mm. 10,000 steps a day. Mm. Yeah. And did you get any um, uh, rewards for... I mean, my team certainly didn't, but yes, they... <laughs> 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 but yes, there, 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 were, there was a team that actually was rewarded. Mm-hmm. But it's also related to what we've dis- we've discussed also is insurance mm-hmm. and um, this idea of being fit, being and being rewarded for that through your data. Yeah, and I mean even the notion of fitness and health is just so classist and racist. I mean it's so problematic, and then to have like this data be the deciding factor and what ends up being like real world like reductions in insurance costs you know um so i was really horrified by this practice and the fact that data from fitness apps aren't protected or at that time weren't protected information under hipaa mm-hmm. um so anyhow so i made a bump <laughs> It looks like a business card holder that's just like on your boss's desk. Um, so it looks like a business card holder to the employee. But from the boss's perspective, it is displaying employee heart rate in real time. And um, the it actually worked. It picked up data from like a, a chest band health monitor. Um, but in addition to just like numerical heart rate, and some cute animations of beating hearts. Um, it also like purported to make conclusions about, you know, the employee, um, you know, the employee's emotional state or physical state. Like employee is selfish. Employee is um, hungover, pregnant. Um, People always want an ease of information. Mm. And so... You know, it doesn't surprise me that people would have been attracted, but also, you know, this kind of simultaneous repulsion <laughs> to something that was so easy, that could e- so easily pick up the, not just the heart rate, but even you mentioned earlier, you know, this idea that a machine, a device could pick up whether someone was pregnant. 
or someone was to a certain extent, you know, because even now, I think I don't know if Amazon is still working on this, but they they were working apparently on a patent so that Alexa could uh, identify abnormalities in your voice. Mm. So we're there now. Yeah. Well, I mean, what was it? Was it Target that like guessed that someone was pregnant? Yes. And, yes. And that was just like and in, in based on purchase history or mailing advertisements or exactly. something. So, I mean, yes. Where did that project end up landing? The bump and that whole series. Um, well... Well, it's interesting that you use the word queering that space because, I mean, I love using the word queering in like the more um, like a verb. Right. And so one thing about that project in general is that it was really like queering our expectations of what um, a startup might be and also like um people's ideas of what art should be in a gallery space um and this is also like to bring you back to the cultural moment of 2015 so yeah there's a lot of talking about data privacy and um there is a lot i mean as there's always been in the bay area but you know a lot of pushback against um tech and like startup culture so um, I presented this in this engineering conference, but also had like the bump um, booth in gallery spaces and presented it there to and to my surprise, the art audience did not really get it. They were um, were they resistant? Yes, they um, like to me, it's so obvious that you would in a gallery space encounter art that was conceptual, that was critical, you know, and to find that people weren't um, making that leap. They actually thought that I was presenting this product. I mean, not everyone, but I did have several angry people talk to me about how this was unethical and like I would stay in the role and talk it through, um, but um, like wouldn't break the act. And this, I mean, I was just shocked that people weren't like going to that level. And I think part of it was just because um, of the knee jerk reaction um, to like startups. Yeah. You know, okay. But I think that I went on a little bit no, of no, a. No. Oh, yeah. So this project. Yeah. So, um, so there was Babump, um, Miglo, the, you know, quote, real one. Um, and then uh, Tattletale Heart. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. I love that project. So Tattletale Heart is like this raver looking necklace with like this LED display. I, I actually wanted one. <laughs> I No, I'm serious. When I first discovered your, your work and I was looking through your website, I legitimately thought to myself, I would buy this. <laughs> I would buy this. I'd buy this as number one as I know knowingly as an as an artwork but also the function of it so i know you're about to describe it i got super excited but yeah please describe title, i mean it's great part. looking it's got like this big pink chain like this kind of mm-hmm. um you know pink plexiglass in the shape of a heart with a um yeah i mean it's some good raver style so um but it also like displays the user's heart rate as more of like a tool for like cruising, you know, at the club. 
or wherever. And then it's also an app. And the app, Tattletale Heart, reads your heart rate through um, the webcam or your cell phone and then um, will post directly to your social media feed. So the idea is like no more like, oh, I'm having such a great day, smiley emoji, um, when in fact what's going on with you might not be like how you front on social media. So Tattletale Heart would then be like, you know. It would tell the truth. It would tell the truth. It's very surveillance. Yes. It, yeah, it's well, very much engaging or there's it's adjacent to surveillance mm-hmm. versus surveillance. It's like a surrender to like ultimate Absolutely. surveillance, you know, like you don't get to author it at all. So, um so yeah, all of these three projects were like uh querying the space of what uh you know, a startup might look like or um but then like I, I mean I just love moving stuff into um, just getting it, making it queer and queer, like actually um, highlighting the community that is like the deepest and dearest to me. And so I think that this has been like a trend in my work as well is like starting to build up these different, um, I don't, they almost become artifacts that then like enter film. And so I created this film, Tattletale Heart, which kind of uses like Babump and Tattletale Heart and Miglo as like both the subject, but like stage for a film that is like really a portrait of like underground queer communities. So, um, and I really, I absolutely, uh, I'm thrilled that you brought up this idea of cruising. <laughs> because I think that there are these signifiers and the things that become visually codified. Mm. And by you talking a little bit more through Tattletale Heart and how it did that, because I, I did actually see it that way, you know, where you've gone to a queer party, there's certain things that you do with your attire mm-hmm. that indicate a certain interest or particular affinity or, mm-hmm. you know, a, a desire, but without overtly stating it. Well, unless you're using hanky code. Exactly. Right. Very, but yeah, and like um, how we present, definitely. And also all these things that are happening um, like below our verbal communication, right? Like yeah. um, micro expressions totally. or whatever, um, body language and, um, and, you know, again, heart surveillance, like really like pulling that to the surface. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, I made a, a sort of campy queer film with everything. And I think that's where they all really came to like shine. Like, you know, the performances, the websites are great, like conceptual projects for me. Like I really enjoy doing them. But the process of like writing and um, crafting a, a film like um was where everything came together for me, partly because, you know, it moved it into the realm of community and not just like, I don't know, sort of uh, vacant art or and or tech audiences, which just like aren't for the most part people I care about. Mm-hmm. No, I get it. And I, I think this also speaks to the your practice is so multifaceted. 
because you work with programming language uh, languages and you you know you teach you know you're an, also an educator in addition to being an artist so you engage you engage in creative coding but then you're also a filmmaker but then you're also doing con- the you know a lot of this comes together and culminates into as you mentioned very conceptual artwork satirical pieces performance and as you mentioned it, which I also deeply ad- appreciate and admire is the highlighting of the communities I so I so equally uh, love and care for mm. right so this queer community and I think this leads me to this idea that I mentioned earlier about really touchy sensitive topics of you know one of them being trauma mm-hmm. and I was also very taken by a project that you did called Traumagachi and I myself did not grow up with a Tamagachi mm-hmm. but I know exactly what they are and you know it's this I remember kind of these these egg these handheld egg-like digital devices that uh, kids would often take care of these these Tamagotchis. But Tamagotchi is different. And if I am understanding the project correctly, because this is how I understood it, and I have engaged with Tamagotchi, I have kind of given given my own trauma to the digital shrine. Um, or what it, what you called it, a, there's like a digital compost it's the deep in the machine world trauma compost shrine. Yes. All one word, no spaces. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, you know, as, as I've mentioned, that's kind of was my take of trauma gotcha is this, is this space where you can go to and give your, give your trauma shape and form in this digital space. But, you know, please go ahead and, and, you know, delve a little bit more into describing it and, and I have a question to follow up after you describe it. Okay. So, um, well, Traumagachi is a website. It's up at um, www.traumagachi.com. <laughs> and on the website, participants can create um, their very own Traumagachi, which is a virtualization of their trauma. So um, just in that, it's a practice in asking people how to conceptualize something that is so, um, like, by definition, difficult to describe. Um, I think linguistically, the definition of trauma is something that you don't have words for. So I was really fascinated by giving people a space to actually create something. And, you know, it's, it's really, like, offbeat, or I don't know, like, weird like one of the first questions is you probably get asked this all the time but what shape is your trauma and then you can select from these different like 3d shapes and this like receding grid kind of like tron throwback world and one thing i should mention about this project is that it was a collaboration with porpentine charity heartscape who um kind of translated the the text that i had written and turned it into like word magic basically because she's a um, word wizard mm-hmm. so um and as far so okay people can log in create your own tramagotchi and then um, or once you've created it you can log in and basically your tramagotchi are just online processing your trauma 24 7 like and i was just like really fascinated by like this um idea that like well what what can computation do 
like besides like crunching numbers, besides like, you know, even drawing the Tramagotchi at 60 frames per second on your web browser, like what could it do if you believe it's doing that? So like Tamagotchi, there um, was some studies done around how people felt about their Tamagotchi. So not Tamagotchi, but like the little egg-shaped things. Um, and um, they're, they call it the Tamagotchi effect, mm -hmm. but it's where you actually believe that it's living, you know? Like people would break down when their Tamagotchi died. Like it became attached to it, even though it's like, you know, a, a, a machine. So um, do you think that has to do with ritual however mm. do you see what i'm saying because i think a lot of people would argue and i've had this discussion multiple times with people about religion mm -hmm. and you know people's piety and this you know i have friends who are equally you know my high school best friend who i who i love and adore is actually quite pious but then i also have really dear friends who are atheists and then i have friends who are agnostic mm. and i think at the end of the day the commonality is ritual and ritual doesn't have to be grounded necessarily in a religion you know ritual is you know like brushing your teeth is a ritual so to a certain extent if we circle back around to why there is a loss for some people and it could be jarring is you know could it be argued that it, it is ritual it is a ritualistic act is it a gesturing towards care it's care yeah you know yeah. So how how do you I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why people were so drawn to the Tramagotchi. I know I can speak for myself and say that I was drawn to the Tramagotchi project uh, because of that, mm -hmm. because of this idea of computationally. How could my how, how could my trauma show up in this digital, you know, space and and be processed? And even that almost see I remember making my one you know my my own trauma and choosing a shape having these digital charms and mm -hmm. then kind of putting it in that in that sphere in that digital sphere and there was something quite cathartic about that mm -hmm. and you know i i guess i'm i'm curious related to what you just brought up with the studies did you you know and I, i'm sorry because i i know we're you know, I'm, I'm so excited talking about this content right now, but um, and the project. But you mentioned that these studies showed that people experienced a type of grief. So did you apply those kind of uh, those ideas to when you were kind of co-creating this this project? Um, like, did that affect kind of how people how you wanted people to engage with the interface? Yeah, I mean, so once you create your Tramagotchi, there is like, and you log in, there's a care menu, right? So you can um, feed it or bathe it or play with it. And then you go through these series of menus choosing like um, what exactly you want to do. And, you know, like bathing gives you an option to bathe it in like the sewer or hot tub or the ocean. So, you know, again, like um, kind of like this offbeat, weird feeling. Um, what I thought in designing it is that people would um, like invest more in this caretaking and that that would like be um, a point that um, would be like beneficial as far as how like the catharsis. 
Um, but what I found actually is that most people like were entertained that by that part, but really it was just the process of making the tramagotchi and being asked these questions. And um, I should mention that the the map of it, like the skin that wraps around these like 3D objects you're crafting. Uh, is like a, a shot from the webcam that then becomes pixelated and you can choose the pixel size and whatever. If you want to check it out, it's easier to see in real life, traumaconchi.com. But um, so, so yes, I was, you know, even considering doing a study where people could um, fill out like forms to see how people were really relating to their Tramagotchi. But in the end, that seemed like it was less, I don't know, relevant. Um, Another thing that you can do once you've logged in is visit the Deep in the Machine World Trauma Compost Shrine. And the Tramagotchi are just like, you know, you're logged off. The Tramagotchi are all hanging out, circling this shrine. I think there's like 450 online right now doing oh, wow. this. And That's quite a bit from the, from the time I actually added my one. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It was up at like a couple shows that were running for a while. Um, so the um, people who visited the museum or gallery would... I, I imagine those are the people that made them. And hopefully it's not like bots or, <laughs> you know. Um, so uh, at the machine compost shrine, you can like state your intentions or release something. So that was another way I was trying to bring in. Um, but, you know, one of the things I have to mention, and I think you know this about me, I'm so woo woo. So mm-hmm. I read tarot. I do moon ceremonies mm-hmm. for myself, even though I'm, really all about science and i love that part of myself that can be analytical i really also love tons of occult things and one of the things i thought about with the tramagotchi is it, i i actually did think this when i first found out about your project and i first learned about it was oh this could be incorporated in a moon ceremony hmm. because when you do moon ceremonies sorry let's get it off track let's just it's an adjacent point go for it But when you do and engage in a moon ceremony, you actually have to burn your intentions. So you write. So it's not everyone does their own moon ceremonies very differently. But one of the things I do when I have the time and the space to 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 kind of meditate and release something that I I want the moon and the universe to take away Mm -hmm. It's it's very similar, like what you have people doing with Tramagotchi is actually very similar to what I would do in a moon ceremony. Absolutely. And there's like the you have these two options where you can either set an intention or release words. And like the way that I practice, um, you know, moon rituals is in the new moon. That's when you like bring in new energy. So the new moon is like the time to like set your intention. Yes. And then the full moon. I mean, that's when it's like just shit is packed. It's built up. That's yeah. when you let stuff <laughs> go. go. Yeah. You know, and yeah. so Tramagachi does like give you those two options. Um and you can also view the code. And ideally, I wanted all the code to also be casting magic spells. Mm-hmm. So as the website's running, um, there are like, you know, incantations literally in the code, like weaving these um, healing spells. So that, yeah, it was it, it took all kinds of shape. I mean, this, pro- I, I mean, I don't know what to say about my practice. It's just like, 
a weird other than it's awesome oh thank you for that (laughs) but i wouldn't say that it's most practical i like tend to do like these um conceptual inquiries that end up being kind of mutating a lot in the process sometimes being long-winded honestly and in the end they all have common threads but look very different feel very different and as far as like practicality again and I know we were talking about the art world and how many issues we have with it but when you're an artist and looking to get visibility for the most part people like brand themselves Mm -hmm. or like kind of find their niche that pesky that pesky idea of legibility Ugh. (laughs) yeah and like my work is not that and I mean like I I think that's great for me because that's like how I want to move through the world. Um, but sometimes I wonder about like the audience experience. Um, but I think a lot of that, too, is and again, we've had conversations about this where and I've had conversations about this with other writers and artists and curators that the expansion of the definition of art in and of itself, you know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, this, this idea of new media and digital art is still very new. And, you know, kind of, I've talked about this ad nauseum with people, but new media and digital art has such a short genealogy mm-hmm. in, in relation to the art world at large. So, if, you know, I think the cultural shift that needs to happen of where does new media and digital art fit within the landscape of art history. I mean, that's a whole other issue that I don't necessarily want to touch upon today because I want to really focus on your practice. But to me, it's legibility. I I kind of, (laughs) there's almost a part of me that I would rather forego legibility and have something that makes me think and question the technology that I'm engaging with on a daily basis. That's m- way more meaningful to me. You, do you know what I'm saying? So I mean, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. I mean, I'm just pointing to the fact that like it's not um uh it's it's not so much I'm concerned about legibility, but it's just not like practical mm-hmm. as like for stance for to take if like you're trying to get um I guess like I don't know, like you're trying to get visibility or recognition, mm. you know? I and see. so I think that that's like um cool because I I don't know where I'm going with this though. No, but I, I, I think I think I have an idea about the practicality part of it because I think sometimes what happens is how can there's other there's a constellation of of folks within different art spaces that also have to know maybe how to explain it, how to engage with people. And I think that's kind of that can be a, a bit of a challenge. And so but to me, again, I, I <laughs> Again, I would actually forego practicality for something that is far more challenging and and breaks the breaks the norm of what people might expect. And also, this is so typical of a lot of work that's made in the new media or digital media space, because like people don't know how to assign value to a GIF. You Absolutely. know, like people don't know how to like, you know, um, fund performance or these are all things that like um, institutions of art are figuring out. Um, so it. 
you know. Yeah. Are no. you about to read that? No, I I was actually going to move on because one of the things that I think it's I think is pertinent. I believe it is pertinent to the conversation we're having now. And it really questions how our engagement, not with just technology, but with one another is you have another project speaking of all of the things that we're talking about and how people are engaging in new media, digital art. You have this project called human computer love. (laughs) So I, I really, you know, it, it kind of harkens back to, I remember essentially when Craigslist first came around and and even even for me it was such a curious website. I think everyone has their own experience with Craigslist whether they bought something off it, found a date mm-hmm. on Craigslist, had an experience, a de- you know, read a rant that offended them or read something beautiful. But you have something that I think is reminding me of those days when people had a space to kind of engage in this really unique way with the internet and with each other or through the internet with each other. So it's called Human Computer Love. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what you're hoping, uh, first what it is, and what you are wanting maybe from the listener. Mm. So Human Computer Love is a website at humancomputerlove.com. And it's a personal ad site for humans looking for computers and computers looking for humans. Um, so anyone can post an ad. It, um, it, you can post it in looking for like your custom or your desired like anything from sex robots to like chat bots to um, VR, AR companions. Um, and it's really a project to imagine radical possibility for technologies of intimacy beyond what are being produced by the media and market forces, right? Because if you look at all the different times that we see, um, you know, sex ro- robot cyborgs in film, they're um, very uh, heteronormative um, beauty standards. They're super colonial with a lot of like racist fetishizing. I mean, Absolutely. if there's any diversity whatsoever, you know, mm-hmm. they're totally fat phobic. Yeah. And they're just really catering to, um, you know, the white cis hetero hard on. Yeah. So um, when there's so much possibility, like these could actually be anything. May I read a few? Go ahead. So I'll just read a few from humancomputerlove.com. So you have the option to view all. And so I went ahead and clicked on view all. And here's here. I'll read. I'll read some here. So the header for this one is something more than physical. Humanoid female identifying robot seeking male or female romantic companion seeking a relationship that is more than just physical. I want to further develop my emotional intimacy, machine learning algorithms. Can you help me? XO. And the place to meet or the contact information is a cozy cafe. Mm. So some of these, again, are also blurring because some people left their email. Some people left their username on social media. Some people left an actual space to meet. And, oh, uh, you know, what else is there? Oh, human. Here's another one. 
Humans seeking interspecies intimacy. I'm looking for a dog robot that I can take for a walk and that will let me pet them when I'm feeling down. Soft fur preferred. This also just reminds me of instantaneously I'm I'm thinking of um you know um Philip K Dick Blade mm-hmm. Blade Runner. And this I you know I'm I'm also just my mind is going in these rhizomatic uh directions where I'm also thinking of the non-human subject. So this idea of you know even when we when we think about subjectivity or who kind of dictates that I think that the project overall is is it forces me to think about that you know um it it kind of is forcing me as a reader as someone who because I will post ads on there I definitely want to contribute to the project also I loved the tone of voice that you took as you were reading it oh no tell me tell me more what what did you appreciate oh I feel like your voice softened in this way that was Mm. like made me think about um you know, uh, phone operators and phone sex, right? Oh my gosh. And, like, I've been really interested in, I think there's this book, um, oh, forgetting the word. Um, it's, I mean, I'm forgetting the title is written by Roseanne Stone, who is also at UC Santa Cruz. Yes. And one thing that she talks about is um, like signal compression. And she studied sex workers who were working mm-hmm. um, on the phone, right? Yeah. And so like how these different signifiers of sex could be communicated mm-hmm. just by people's voice. Yeah. Um, I mean, even, yeah. even uh-huh. now. Yeah, yeah. see, yeah. <laughs> like, even right now. But it's funny that you mentioned that because one of the sub-genres of literature that happens when operators were being used to connect uh, business people, businessmen mm-hmm. mostly, to one another and when long distance actually became a thing, uh, most, if not all, of the operators were women. But it gave birth to a subgenre called telegraphic fiction, mm. where people, mostly women, were writing about the emotional labor that they were, uh, you know, performing for these men who would not even sometimes they wouldn't even call to be connected to their business partner collaborator. They actually would call because they would want to talk to a very specific woman mm-hmm. for for to to um either for maybe something fantastical or to, again, um, acquire this emotional labor. Through the voice. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm really, I, I don't know if you know this about an aspect of my, of my practice, but I'm, I'm studying telecommunications more specifically. Mm. I'm actually looking at media archaeology of the telephone. I'm looking at kind of the gendering of voice. So it's very, it's very interesting that you said, oh, how my voice even kind of took on its own meta performativity almost. Yeah. I mean, that's so fascinating. I mean, even thinking about the history of new media, like the telephone is the first instance of telepresence, which is really like the basis for like media and communications and like what we think of as newer digital media. Right. Yes. And like, um, and I'm thinking right now, oh my gosh, Alexa, Right. Like people looking to connect for the female voice, you know, in what you were saying about these phone operators and then like the labor or non-labor that Alexa is doing. And there's been a number of articles that have come out about like the gendering of the voice and how it's like training people to basically boss um, 
a woman around and all these things. Are you studying that at all? Or I am. I actually <laughs> wrote an academic paper and I'm presenting it, but it is about, I mean, the title of it is actually, and it's probably going to morph and change as I, as I, as I iterate on it, but the, the paper is actually called, or the title of it is humans will always be better than machines. The a or um, performance in the age of assistive technology, mm. and so there's different artists, you know, such as Lauren McCarthy who performs as assistive technology, you know, but Cara DeFabio when she performed, you know, virtual girlfriend beta, mm-hmm. and you know, incorporating the use of Alexa as a part of, you know, the actual theatrical production. But absolutely, I mean, those are those are those are things that are quite, you know, I, I talk about a s- obsession. Those are the things I'm very much fascinated by. So, you know, how also, uh, you know, I, I've also read like Juana Rodriguez's work where, you know, Queer Latinidad, where, you know, it's an older book that she she published years ago about the performativity of language. So when you're typing out, uh, not even voice, but when you're typing you know, because when, you know, the Internet starts to become more popular and I mentioned Craigslist, the way that you start to communicate even now via text, there's different things, you know, different there's different vernacular, mm-hmm. you know. And so I'm also equally fascinated by that. It's so interesting how like these changing technologies are actually like changing our mind. And like yes, our minds yes. are elastic. I mean, they do studies like after you've been on the Internet for five hours, like the mass of your prefrontal lobe increases because you're making all these like micro decisions. Yeah. And then your ability to like um, pay attention on just one subject like fall. Like, yeah, our brains look different mm-hmm. than people's brains did 20 years ago. I oh, mean, yeah. it's bonkers. And like um, text like uh, so I teach uh, university students. And it is, they do not like to read like PDFs, you know, like you give them right. a blog and it's like single scroll down. It could be as long as a PDF, but for some reason it's in like a format that they're like willing to tolerate. And they also like, um, at, at least many of my students struggle with um, writing because it feels so laborious because I think because they're so used to being able to like write in shorthand. Yeah. You agree? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, you know, having worked with students, you know, both undergrad and graduate students, but, you know, you see, it's a little bit different with graduate students, but yeah, you're absolutely right. There there are kind of these uh, differences that technology has actually kind of, I mean, you know, I mean, there are different people that have kind of theorized about this, you know, Um but I mean, such as Catherine Hales, who talks mm-hmm. about the different types of reading. So there's, you know, there's there's close reading, there's hyper reading, there's machine reading. So even the way that we're reading has changed that then kind of results in the way that we communicate or in this case, the way that we write and produce knowledge, like knowledge mm-hmm. production in and of itself is very different now than when, you know, I was in college in the 90s and there was no social media, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> at the time. So, I mean, I think, so anyway, to to the point that I guess I'm trying to make a, at the end of the day, your work 
in and of itself is just, it spans so many different topics and it touches upon so many of the things that I very much am fascinated and obsessed with. So, and, and also this went by really fast because I think I could talk to you for so much more longer, like so, so much longer than, than, you know, we actually did because I, I feel like I barely scratched the surface with you. Um, but there's this tradition because we're going to I'm going to wrap this up now because I, I, I know you have a lot going on. But there's a tradition at State of the Art where we ask these rapid fire questions. And so you can't think it just has to be the first answer that comes to mind. Oh, God. OK. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're pretty easy. I've been asking the same four questions. So the first one is, what is your favorite pattern? Do you have a favorite mm, pattern? Yeah, I like that one. What do they call it? It's the isometric like cube stack. Oh yeah, that's mm-hmm. it. Like very cubert. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. So I yeah. Oh, that's that's lovely. At the moment, because you know when I talk to artists and writers, they they're they're we're all reading like you know five hundred books at the same time. <sighs> but my question is, at the moment, what is you know, one of your favorite texts or books that you're that you're kind of into right now? Mm. So right now, I mean, I've been reading a lot about octopuses because I'm working yes. about this movie about this giant octopus that impregnates humans. Whole other story. Yeah, that's a um, whole other podcast that we I feel like I need to find figure out another way to talk to you and have it for the public because that sounds like such an amazing project. Uh, well, it's um, it's a lot of things, it's a- <laughs> <laughs> um, but the book Other Minds I enjoyed. Yeah, yeah and I've heard of that. Um, truth be told, um, oh, I'm also reading Donna Haraway's The Companion Species. I like almost adopted a new puppy today. I'm a mm. little like dog obsessed. I mean, whatever. I've always been dog obsessed. Angels are real. Yes, they are. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, But truth be told, when the semester ended, I spent maybe five days straight reading all of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series, which I had never read before. Um, Oh, wow. No, I mean, I've never, I've watched the movie. Yeah, I mean, they're page turners. Deeply problematic, I think, in their feminism. (laughs) But like... But still, um, page turners. Yeah, and I, yes, I, I just... As far as reading goes, like I love learning about stuff that applies to my work, to my practice, but you gotta enjoy like a page turner. Like yes. there's some amazing young adult fiction coming out. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. That's, we need to discuss that after. Okay. Next question. Next question. At the moment, your favorite film. Oh, or a film that you watched that's so I was on the airplane the other day and I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, just truth be told, any film I watch on the airplane, I cry in and I think oh, it's the best yeah. film ever. <laughs> no, <laughs> same. Yeah, I'm very same. Very much the same. I'm like Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I watched The Favorite. Oh, my gosh. I love that film. Mm-hmm. I, I thought love it the was director. really great. I thought it was yeah. really well done. I love the director. Um, I mean, he's done some really... Some of his films are challenging to watch, but I absolutely love his films like Dogtooth. And I mean, that one's hard to watch. Um, and The Killing of the Sacred Deer. Oh, yeah. Oh, have He's, you yeah. seen Border? 
Oh, you know what? Someone recommended that. that to me. I'm is, going to watch it. Mm-hmm. I watched okay. that twice in the fall. And oh, like, wow. I mean, one thing you should know about me, I mean, um, is that I have a troll collection. I have like over 150. I saw that. Troll. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty awesome, though. That is actually that. I was going to ask you about that. It's, they're hard. To, I mean, there's only like 10 or 15 out right now. You should see them when they're like all, you know, seeing the light of day. It's not good for their hair, though. So, but <laughs> anyways, Border. It was probably the most amazing movie I've seen in like 10 years. Okay. Watch I will that. have to watch that. So here's the last question. What is your favorite scent? Mm, I rather enjoy frankincense. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that. I actually have that as an essential oil at home, which I think I'm going to. I'm going to unwind later. But thank you so much because there's so much more to talk about. And I deeply appreciate you sitting with me and just talking about all the things. And yeah. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you. What a delight to speak with you as always. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for joining us on State of the Art Podcast. You can learn more about Lark VCR at larkvcr.com and follow them on Instagram also at larkvcr. As they say, all good things come to an end, but it's been such a wonderful experience guest hosting for State of the Art. I had an awesome time, but most important, I wanted to give special thanks to Andrew, Vanessa, Ethan, Wes, and Eddie. Thank you so much for this wonderful, lovely opportunity.